Open your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. You know, that song was perfect in Christ alone for our sermon on the Reformation. The Reformation. And this morning is going to be a little bit unusual. You know, normally I like to go through the Scriptures. Today we're going to base and establish some things on Scripture and we'll be turning to some different places in our Bible. So get 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and also get Revelation chapter 2 ready to go. And, you know, in Christianity, there is some real confusion about the Reformation and what happened. And so we're going to try and clear some of that up this morning. And it's kind of an impossible task. It's a huge amount of information. And we're going to try and get it through quickly or get through it quickly. And so... I'm not going to be able to explain many of the things that we're going to talk about. This is going to be kind of a shotgun thing. And so those of you who are in discipleship, um, if you have questions about it, you can talk to your discipler. But at the end of the service, um, we, have, we publish out of Grace Baptist, the Ancient Baptist Journal. It's about a 200-page book that comes out quarterly. This issue uh, is the Baptists and the Reformation, and this came out a, year, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I wrote an article that we printed in this journal called The Reformation in Light of Baptist History. And so we've printed a hundred copies of that article and they're available. You can just take one as you leave. We have a hundred of those if you're interested in that. So you can have everything that I give you, all of my slides, all the information that I give you, we have footnotes for all of it. So none of the statements that I'll show you are just conjecture or possibly a misquote. They are all cited. We have sources for all of the information that I'm going to give you. And some of it may be shocking to you if you've never seen it before. And so we're going to have fun. We're going to power through it. Why don't we have a word of prayer, then we'll read the Scriptures. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, thank you for a church that loves truth. And Father, um, I'm, I'm so thankful that you've brought people here who want to know these things and are willing to listen and listen intently. Father, I pray that you're glorified by all of it, that our spirit and demeanor brings glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul was very concerned about what was going to happen in the churches. And so if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. Um, do any of you have children? Your children, do you care about them? I don't know that the pastor-church member relationship is a lot different than that. You know, over time, so after 20 years, that's the way that I feel about you. I'm jealous for you. False doctrine or things that are harmful to your families and those things. I hate that stuff and I want to fight it. And that's what Paul's talking about with this church at Corinth. He said, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So he wanted that church to remain pure, right? But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, it's very interesting. Notice he doesn't say he's worried their spirit's going to be corrupted. 
Because our spirits are preserved blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. When you get saved, you are spiritually perfect. Isn't that good? Now, we still sin. We're, we're not physically perfect. We're going to sin until Jesus Christ takes us out of this body. But spiritually, we're perfect. And um, if you look on the website, on the front page of our website, gracebaptistsydney.com, it's a message that I preach called Engage Liberty. So if you want to understand how that dichotomy works in your life, there's a message there that would be very helpful for you. But this, he notice that he says he's worried or he fears that, that Satan would corrupt their minds, that their minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And what is it that he was worried about? Their minds would be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I don't know if you understand the gospel is very simple. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He died because we're sinners. And the only acceptable payment for our sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. Either we have that payment applied to our account or we'll spend eternity paying a debt that can never be paid in the torment of hell. That's the simplicity of the gospel. It's it. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And the apostle was very concerned because the Holy Spirit had inspired these words that the early churches were going to be corrupted by moving away from the simplicity that is in Christ. How's that going to happen? Verse 4. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. So what the Apostle Paul is worried about is people are going to come and present a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Does that happen now? You know, there are people that think Jesus is for homosexuality. They think Jesus is for abortion. They think Jesus is for all this debauchery that goes on in the world. That is blasphemy against our precious Savior. Jesus said, if you offend one of these little ones, it would be better that a millstone were tied about your neck and you were cast in the sea. That's what Jesus said. That's the Jesus of the Bible. And if the world loves your Jesus, it's because you've made him into something that he is not. Our Savior is a righteous judge. That's our Savior or another spirit. You know, there are a lot of people that are doing things that they say is in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's not the spirit of the Bible. And there are a lot of people that go along with that spirit. And then another gospel. Now, we know what the gospel is. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so anything that undermines that is corrupt. And it's, it's removing people. It's uh, corrupting them. Yes, that, that you should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Keep your place in 2 Corinthians. Go to Galatians. Just a couple of pages over. Galatians 1, look at verse 6. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would... What's that next word? Pervert. The gospel of Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. That word pervert, is that a strong word? Yeah. And would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be tolerated, prayed for, and encouraged. What's it say? What's repetition in the Bible? 
Look at what it says, verse 9. As we said before, so say I now again, If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. So, it's really important that we understand that in our day and age, that there is an attack on the gospel, there's an attack on who Jesus is, there's an attack on who the Holy Spirit is, and then there's the attack on the gospel. Just as the Apostle Paul was concerned about that he feared and presented in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Reformation was a response to corruption that had entered into the established church, which was the Roman Catholic Church. Now, if you're here this morning, you're a guest, and you are Roman Catholic. You, either you are Roman Catholic currently, or if you, you have come from a Roman Catholic background, um, you're going to hear some things about the history of the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic system today, that I hope doesn't offend you. Um, it's just the truth. I could give you example after example after example of abhorrent teaching that has been preached by independent Baptist preachers. I'm not offended when someone brings that up to me because I want that error to be marked and corrected. And so that has to be our, our desire. Let God be true and every man a liar. And so anything that is sinful or wrong at Grace Baptist Church, we want to get it out of here. Isn't that right? We don't want that here. We want to be holy before God. As the Apostle Paul said, we want to be presented to Christ as a chaste virgin. And that's talking to the church at Corinth, and that would be his desire for Grace Baptist Church today if the Apostle Paul were here. So as we discuss these things and we look at these things, it's just history. It's just what happened. Now, the flip side of it is if you're a Protestant and you're here today, you come from a Lutheran background or a Presbyterian background or a Methodist background, you're going to hear some things today that will be uncomfortable for you. But again, these facts are stubborn things. I'm going to give you the statements of the leaders of these faiths, of these denominations, and you'll see some issues that have arisen even during the Reformation. All right? So... I'm going to try and get through this material as quickly as I can. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to listen really fast. Okay? So let's get started. A biblical view of the Reformation. What was the Reformation? The Reformation was a movement to purify the Roman Catholic Church from some of its errors. So what are the errors that were brought in? I'm going to show you some of those things historically. What errors had crept into the Roman Catholic Church? Now, it is interesting that... Um, that, the, that the Roman church never admitted to its errors. As a matter of fact, at the Council of Trent, they doubled down on those errors. And it's a very sad thing. Because all of us, all of us are in error. And when we are confronted by the Word of God with our error, it's our responsibility to submit to the Word of God. All of us have to do that. I, as a pastor, um, uh, sometimes I'll listen to a sermon that I preached 20 years ago, and I'll say, oh, my goodness, did I say that? Did I really say that? And why? Because we're just people. We're going to make mistakes. The error really becomes compounded when you believe that you're incapable of error. Right? Have you ever been married to somebody? No, don't raise your hands. No, no. <laughs> incapable of error. And I've got I've to tell you, Jim Alter, pastor of Grace Baptist Church, I am very much capable of error. 
And that's why it's the church's responsibility to search the Scriptures daily to see whether the things I'm saying are so. That's Acts 17.11. You need to write that down and make sure that whatever is preached at Grace Baptist Church, that we verify it from the Scriptures. The authority at Grace Baptist is not Jim Alter. The authority at Grace Baptist is the Scriptures. So when these in the Roman Catholic system were uh, confronted with their error, they did not respond as they should have. Um, popularly, the Reformation began with Martin Luther, a German monk, when he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany. And what, these, what was going on at that time was um, there was a man that was, actually the whole church, was selling indulgences. They needed to raise money to build uh, St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And in order to get the money for the cathedral, they started selling indulgences. And what an indulgence was, was it either shortened your family member's time in purgatory. So if you had someone who had died and they were in purgatory, the indulgence would, would shorten their suffering and torture that was taking place in purgatory. That's what the indulgence was. Or you could have some free sins. So you could buy an indulgence with money and the church would grant you forgiveness of sins that you hadn't committed yet. Other things that would happen were relics. They would, there was one man in Germany who had 36 splinters of the true cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. And they had bones of Mary. And one person claimed to have breast milk of Mary. Seriously. My favorite is the two churches that both claim to have the head of John the Baptist. And one was smaller, so the smaller one said it was John when he was a boy. I'm not kidding. This, it, this is what happened. This was the superstition and paganism that had overtaken the Roman Catholic Church in Europe at this time. This is what Martin Luther was protesting. And so when Luther started learning about these indulgences, and he wanted one. He went to visit this, this woman mystic who supposedly hadn't eaten or drink, drunk anything in 17 years. And she was, uh, she, they had said that if you'll go see her, that you can get an indulgence. And what he wanted was he wanted forgiveness and purgatory for his mother. He was really serious about it. And so how many of you recognize that there's not one thing in Scripture to condone that type of behavior? I'm sorry, I can't forgive your sin. You know, you can still give me money. I'm for that. But in response, I can't, give you, I can't forgive your sin. I can't do it. I don't have that capacity. No man does. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's not forgiveness in any other. It's just Jesus Christ. And so what Luther did was he wrote these 95 arguments against indulgences and those things that were going on in that Catholic system. And what he said was that no man, including the Pope, has the authority to sell the forgiveness of sin. You can't do that. So that was where that came from. Now, Luther didn't intend for this information to uh, get out into the public. It was just for something to take place in the Catholic Church. But it was printed, and it, it, it just launched this entire movement all over Europe against the oppression that was coming from that Catholic Church. And so popularly, and what I mean by popularly is that most people think that's where the Reformation began. When going all through history, there were people that held to the truth. So let's examine some of that. 
Why was this reformation needed? There are, and I'm sorry that this is so small. I thought it was going to display larger. So I'll just have to read it to you. There were two lines of church history. All right? So there are two lines of church history. There's one line that goes back to Jesus Christ and the apostles. There's another line that began later, around 300 A.D. And during this time, this early church period from 33 on, there was some corruption that had entered in. The churches had begun moving away from that simplicity that was in Christ, and there were some errors that started. Look at Revelation chapter 2. I'm not going to take the time to support the statement I'm about to make. You can find that in other places, other things that we've done. But in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus Christ has written letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And each of these churches were literal historic churches, but they also identify periods of church history. Jesus is prophesying what's going to happen in the history of the church. That first period of church history was from the apostles through about 200 A.D. And in Revelation chapter 2 to the church at Ephesus, Jesus Christ is writing to them and He commends them. He says in verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. So you can imagine that after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there were a lot of people that said they were apostles. And so this church at Ephesus had done a good job of rejecting that, that there were only 12 apostles. The original 12, then Judas, of course, betrayed, and then Matthias. And then the apostle Paul was separate. He He identified himself as one born out of due time. Jesus Christ personally called the Apostle Paul later. So this this church at Ephesus did a good job. And look at what he says, "...and has tried them," middle of verse 2, "...which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them what? Liars." Uh, It is interesting to me that that kind of language isn't used in Christianity anymore. If someone's a false teacher, they're a liar. You're not going to hear that on K-Love. Right? Because Christianity has become soft and it's rejected biblical, biblical language. All right, so let's go on. And has borne and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, so he said, you've done some good things. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left what? And now we've heard a lot about that first love through preaching. But biblically, here's what happened. They left the first love. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, or if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. I say that to Laura all the time. If you love me, keep my commandments. Then Jesus explained it. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Later on, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my words. If you love me, keep my words. Where do we have the words of Jesus Christ? In Scripture, if you love me, keep my words. During this period of church history, going all the way back, beginning shortly after the apostles, there were some men who had come in, and they began to use words, phrases, and concepts that were not expressly stated in Scripture. So later on, this would enter in. Purgatory. How many of you have heard of purgatory? Right? You never heard it from the Scriptures. It's not found there. It's a concept and a system that is not found in the Bible. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. 
That's the clear teaching of Scripture. There's no intermediate state for the believer. When you die, you're with Jesus. Or when you die, you're in hell. Those are the two options, all right? How many, which one do you think is better? With Jesus, right? All right, so they began to add words, phrases, and concepts that are not expressly stated in Scripture. I want to give you some examples. So Clement of Rome, look at how early this is. He lived from 30 to 100 A.D. Revelation was finished around 100 A.D., between 90 and 100 A.D., the book of Revelation. This is how early error started coming in. He taught that pastors are like the high priest, therefore they must be over the laity. Now, what's the laity? That's the common man. And you need to understand, we'll see this again in a minute, there's no distinction like that in the Bible. There's no priesthood and laity. If we are saved, we are all priests. The Bible says, For ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. That's what we are, okay, as believers. So Clement of Rome, how many of you think that this, this, that this concept of the priesthood and the laity caused trouble? Yeah. How is it that there can be pedophile priests... And now, there's something else that always needs to be said about that. It's almost always homosexual. Right? And that that scandal can continue year after year after year. Why is that? Because it doesn't matter how sinful the priest is, the office is holy. That's the teaching of the church. The office is holy. So it doesn't matter. Now, do they have discipline for priests and do they defrock priests and those things? Yes, of course. But the reason that it's allowed to continue and that a priest can commit that kind of behavior and be moved to another diocese, be moved to another area to continue his error is because the office of the priesthood, which is an unbiblical office, is considered holy whether the man is holy or not. That's the teaching of the church. And you'll see that that actually entered into Lutheranism as well. Um, So... That concept of the priesthood and the laity is part of the corruption that entered in early on. Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, and I know many have heard of him. I call him Iggy. He lived from 80 to 115. He was the first person to refer to all Christians as the Catholic Church. He called believers sons of the church when the Bible says we're sons of God. Have you heard of that, sons of the church? Have you ever heard that? That goes all the way back to Ignatius. We're not sons of the church. No one is born from the church. Right? The church is made up of people who are born again. It's very important that we get that. And so he, this concept of the Catholic church, the word Catholic means universal, and that concept is not biblical. It doesn't come from Scripture. Papias, he claimed that the gospel of Mark came from Peter, who was in Rome. He also claimed that John did not write, did not write the book of Revelation. So one of the things that you run into in church history is this foundation, that Mark was not his own... Uh, Apostle, that Mark was not his own testimony, that he had to get his information from somewhere else. That led to all kinds of problems. The other thing is, there is no evidence that Peter was ever in Rome. None. None. So this teaching began early, but it was not based on the Scripture. And how many of you know that that has led to some problems? Right? I could go more on, but let's, let's move on. Epicurus, he was from 50 to 120. He attempted to marry philosophy in the Bible. And you all have heard me talk about that ad nauseum, right? You cannot marry philosophy and the Bible. Philosophy, that's from the, the, a lover of wisdom. In the Greek, philosophy means lover of wisdom. The Bible says that in the wisdom of God, God by, man by wisdom knew not God. In the, for in the wisdom of God, man by wisdom knew not God. You can't know God through earthly wisdom. You can't do it. It's only through Jesus Christ. 
Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, the Bible says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy. You cannot marry philosophy and Christianity. Later on in the history of the Catholic Church, Thomas Aquinas and what's called scholasticism, they married Greek philosophy with it again, and it led to all kinds of trouble. And that was the system that Martin Luther was fighting against in 1517. Basilides in 133. He was a Gnostic. Now, Gnostics were people who believed that they had higher knowledge beyond that was in scripture, what was in Scripture. And he did not believe that Jesus really died on the cross. Justin Martyr was a Christian philosopher who taught that man is regenerated by the sprinkling of water. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 5. We'll go back to Revelation. I told you that too late, but hopefully you can find it again. Look at Titus. Chapter 3 and verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. The washing of regeneration, regeneration is born again, new birth. So the washing comes from being born again, not from water. So by changing the words of the Bible or adding to the words of the Bible, it led to all kinds of trouble. Polycarp, he said, Faith is the mother of us all. This small seed of error grew into the devastating doctrine that the new birth comes from the church. Again, nobody is saved by the church. I mentioned Dalton Robertson. We were preaching in Texas together. And, you know, everybody in Texas is a Baptist, you know, most of them. And he, he said, he was preaching there, and he said, There are more Baptists in Texas than will be in heaven. And that's true, because you can be born into a Baptist family and be lost as a goose in a snowstorm. It is so true, man. No one is, no one is saved by becoming a Baptist. You're saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. Or His death, burial, and resurrection. All right? So, I want you to see this. Um, look, Go back to Revelation chapter 2. Biblical view of the Reformation. Look at verse 6. So remember what he has said in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Verse 6. But this thou hast. All right, you did that, but here's a good thing. That thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? Nicolaitans is a compound word combining two words, nikeo, which is to conquer or overcome, rule, and laos, which is the common man, the people or the laity. So this, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, this is, it goes all the way back to that Clement of Rome. Remember Clement, he, he, 100 AD, when the book of Revelation is being finished, Clement is already teaching that the, that the pastor is like the high priest and therefore he's over the laity. So that is like me saying that you can't understand the Bible without me. That's wrong. I have no more access to truth than you do. The only thing that will limit your ability to understand the Bible, the only thing that will do that, number one, your intellect. Number two, your ability to work. Number three, your obedience to what you learn. The Bible makes it very clear, and I think we'll look at that this coming Wednesday night in our study on parables, that when you look at the, the Scriptures, 
The Bible makes it very clear that when you obey the truth that you're given, God will give you more truth. If you stop obeying it, you're going to stop learning the Scriptures. That's the only limitation. Beyond that, the only difference between you and me in Bible study is it's my job and I probably have more time to do it than you do. That's the difference. I'm not over you spiritually. Now, something that has to be said here, the Bible says that you're supposed to obey your pastor because he cares for your soul. You're supposed to submit to your pastor because I care for your souls. Now, if you're a guest here, you're probably thinking, what's this guy on some kind of power trip? Does he tell his people to submit to him every week? When's the last time I said that? I don't know if we can, any of you can remember the last time I said that, but it's a biblical teaching. You submit to your pastor, whether it's Jim Alter or anybody else. And if you can't submit to that pastor because he's not holy, because he's teaching false doctrine, find another church, right? So sub, that submission is vital. But here's the thing. Don't miss this. Please don't miss this. It's completely voluntary. I can't come to your house and say, what are you watching on TV? None of my business what you do in your house. That's between you and the Lord. Amen? Now, you guys are real excited about the football game. Let's try this again. Let's try this again. It's none of my business what happens in your house. Sounds like a bunch of Michigan fans. All right. So this doctrine entered in, and it caused a bunch of trouble. All right? Sorry, Bob. So that's, that's what happened during that first period. Now, the concept of the Reformation and I've heard so many people say this, is that Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel. How many of you have heard a statement like that? That the, the, the great thing about the Reformation is Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel. Now, here's the deal. I'm glad that Martin Luther discovered the gospel for himself. I'm thankful for that. But it was there, right? There were other people that were preaching. And even this, what's so funny is, um, there was a man named John Huss. I've actually been to the place where he was uh, killed. He was burned at the stake. And... John Huss said, if anything doesn't agree with Scripture, it's Antichrist. And there was a lot in the Catholic Church that didn't agree with Scripture, and so they killed him. And so Martin Luther hated John Huss. Well, during one of his disputations, that's an argument that he would have having with the higher-ups in the church, he was accused of being a Hussite, a follower of John Huss who existed in Bohemia. So this whole group of people who were fighting against the Catholic Church and were never a part of it existed way before Martin Luther. Are you following me? So he was accused of being a Hussite, and he was mad about that. Oh, I'm not a Hussite. He was a heretic. Well, somehow somebody gave him the writings of John Huss, and he started reading it, and he said, I'm a Hussite. (laughs) All right? So all along through this whole situation... There are groups that are standing for the truth, preaching the gospel, running for their lives all through this period of church history. In that Ephesus period, there was this group called the Montanists, then another group called the Novatians. It's interesting, the Novatians around 200, they were called Puritans because they were much more pure than the corruptions that were entering into the larger church. Isn't that interesting? So all along, there were people that were obeying the truth. So this next period, this Smyrna period, is from 200 to 325. So look at Revelation chapter 2. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but there was one significant error that entered in. 
The word Smyrna, it means bitterness and death. You see that right in the middle, myrrh? Myrrh is what they brought Jesus at his death, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold for his deity, uh, frankincense for his priesthood, and myrrh for his death. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, during the millennium, they bring gifts to Jesus Christ. They bring him gold and frankincense. No myrrh because he only died once. Isn't that awesome? So this, this Smyrna, it means bitterness and death, and man, they suffered so much. But a major error appears here. So look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. Jesus said, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy. Now, how many of you think that's, uh, that, that's good? Is Jesus saying something, that this is good or that it's bad? It's bad. He said, um, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are what? Jews and are not, but are sincere but mistaken. What does it say? Synagogue of Satan. You're not real Jews. You're the synagogue of Satan. Isn't Jesus gentle? Gentle shepherd. I mean, that was a great song, but Jesus is a lot different than most people understand him to be. Is that fair? He hates false teaching. And this teaching is replacement theology. It is the teaching that Israel, all the promises that were made to Israel, because they rejected Jesus Christ, the Jews, now all of those prophecies that were and promises that were made to Israel, they now apply to the church. Well, that's completely unbiblical. Look at, uh, keep your place in Revelation. Go to Romans chapter 11. Look at verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God does not change His mind about who He calls and what He has given. Because if He could, you could lose your salvation. Aren't you glad He doesn't change? The Bible says that salvation is a gift. He gave us that gift. If you've received that gift, you'll never lose it. Isn't that a blessing? So this concept, go back to Revelation, this concept of the church replacing Israel, that starts growing during this period between 200 and 325. And so this idea that all that this anti-Semitism, that is that the hatred of the Jews, that starts growing and it ends up persecuting the Jews. How many of you have ever wondered why Jews are liberal? Why would Jews, it's Christians that support Israel, why would Jews always support people that want their destruction because of Christians, because of people who named the name of Jesus Christ that would hunt them and kill them for centuries. That's that Roman Catholic system. And then also the Protestant system did the same thing because they both practiced this replacement theology. Very evil, very evil, all right? So... At this time, we add the next period, and that's Pergamus. This Pergamus period runs from 325 to 500, and at this time, the emperor Constantine becomes emperor in Rome, and he, there, there are actually four emperors, but eventually it gets down just to him, and he takes over, and he marries Christianity with the Roman Catholic system and pagan theology. At this point, you see how the arrow comes over here? This is where that second line of church history starts. But all along there have been people that have believed in the truth of the Word of God. Isn't that a blessing? God has always had a people. 
So, this Pergamus period. Pergamus means much marriage. This age began with the marriage of church and state under the Roman Emperor Constantine around 325 A.D. What are the key errors that entered in? Look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. How about that? Look, it might be hard to minister in Sydney, but Satan doesn't live here. I know you're thinking you don't know my mother-in-law. But it's a, I, But I promise you, Satan doesn't live here. There's insurrection going on back here. I, I promise you, Satan doesn't live here. And the other thing that I want you to see from this is that Satan is not omnipresent. Sometimes we give... Satan can't be fighting you and someone else at the same time. Amen? And how many of you ever heard somebody say, how you doing? Well, Satan's fighting. You ever heard somebody say that? Nah, probably not. Probably not. Now, maybe this world system is fighting you. Might even have demonic oppression coming against you. But it's probably not Satan because he can only be in one place at one time and he's probably got bigger fish to fry. Right? So, that's clear teaching of Scripture, where Satan's seed is, that was in Pergamos. All right? Uh, so, that's where Satan's seed is, middle of verse 13, and has not denied my faith. Even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. So God wants us to know repetition there that this Pergamus issue is a big issue, this city. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. All right, so look. Look up here. This doctrine of Balaam, what was that? He had two methods of attack. He attacked Israel to have them eat things offered to idols and to get them to commit fornication. All right, so what arises at this time? This concept of transubstantiation in the Eucharist in the Catholic Church. Where you're eating things offered to idols. That's what's arising at this period of time in church history. It's wickedness. And to commit fornication. What is fornication? Now, we know that that's sexual immorality. But when he's talking with churches, it's talking about marrying false doctrine with Christianity. And that's exactly what happened in this period of time. Do you know what that pagan Pergamos religion, is called Mystery Babylon, had long-robed priests in black robes. They had Easter bunnies. It was all a part of the fertility rite. They had Yule logs. They, uh, all of this stuff that's not found in Christianity but is used. Not, listen, I don't care if you hide Easter eggs. I don't care. All right? Well, the preacher preaches against Easter. I like chocolate. Me too. But where did that stuff come from? It's not from Christianity. It's from a pagan religion. So that was married and a lot of false religion. That, that pagan mystery religion that was at Pergamos, a man named Attalus III was the high priest of that at Pergamos. Then they were conquered and it was all taken to Rome. This religion had a mother-child deity. And the mother was worshipped as the God of heaven, as, as the mother of God and the queen of heaven. None of that comes from the Bible. So important that we understand this. This is where it entered in. And while that's going on, there are Christians fighting against every bit of it. Um, if you look here at this time in the Pergamos period, 
you had the Donatists. They were early Christians, early Baptists in the northern part of Africa. And these are the people that Augustine fought against. So over here you see Augustine. He's the father of the Roman Catholic system. Augustine lived from 354 to 430. And what he did was he introduced Mary worship. He introduced infant baptism. And he said that if you were against infant baptism, you should be killed. And so what he did, Augustine had 30,000 of these Donatists executed. 30,000 people killed. He had them all murdered. Some saint, huh? Wickedness. And then during this period, you had this group of people called the Paulicians. These Donatists, when they were persecuted, they scattered north and south. But when they went north, they went all through Europe. These Paulicians are descendants of the Donatists. And the problem was getting a hold of the Bible at that period of time because there was no printing press. And what happened was there was a young man named Constantine. It's interesting. He helped uh, a deacon who was from Africa who was coming through his area. And that man gave him, as a reward for that, copies of all the writings of the Apostle Paul. You know, you could have a pretty good church if all you had were the writings of the Apostle Paul. And so they were called the Paulicians. They ended up with all of the scriptures, but what they were known for is they would memorize entire books of the Bible and walk into cities and quote the scriptures and preach the gospel. So, of course, they had to be killed. But these Paulicians, they lasted for hundreds of years all through Italy and Armenia and, and Slovenia and all of those former Soviet republics, all in those Baltic states. They were all over that area preaching the gospel, and they were in existence their descendants, during the Reformation. So we're going to skip through. We're not going to go through the rest of those seven churches. I just wanted you to see that all through church history, there were always people that believed in the authority of the Scriptures, a born-again church membership. They believed in believers' baptism. They believed in the liberty of the soul. And that is you can't make someone believe something. It has to be of their own free will. They didn't believe in the baptizing of babies because baptism must follow salvation. All of these groups that I'm showing you, they all believed these things. So what about the Reformation? When the key men of the Reformation, Martin Luther was in Germany, John Calvin, in Fr he was from France, but he was run out, and so he did most of his work in Geneva, Switzerland. Huldrych Zwingli, he was also in Switzerland, but in Zurich. John Knox in Scotland. Henry VIII in England. But Henry VIII is an interesting character because he wrote a book in response to Martin Luther called Defense of the Seven Sacraments. So he was a strong Luther... Or, or, uh, Henry VIII was a strong Catholic. As a matter of fact, he was given an award by the Pope as Defender of the Church because of this book. But then when he wanted to get his divorce and the Pope wouldn't do that, he decided he wasn't a Catholic anymore. Right? You all know that history. That's what happened. And so he became supreme head of the church and the Church of England. Eventually, the Church of England became Protestant. But the Church of England was so close to the doctrine of the Catholic Church, it's just hard to distinguish it. And we'll see some of that in a second. So now what we're going to do is we're going to do... Uh, you had to get here. I wanted you to see that God told us these errors would happen. He addressed every one of them. And that there have always been true believers in existence, because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There has always been a true church. Always people preaching the gospel and practicing biblical doctrine. Did they have some errors in their teaching? We've already said we all have errors. Amen? So here's what people will do now. 
They'll say, well, those people, they believed this. <laughs> they can't be Baptists. You know, you, you get that garbage all the time. And because I do this work, I get it all the time. Yeah, they had some errors. They're running for their lives and they didn't have Google. They were doing the best they could with what they had, but they were so far, cl- much, so much closer to the truth than that Roman Catholic system, their enemies and persecutors, than you could ever imagine. They were, they were people preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a blessing? Believing the truth of the Word of God. So let's look at some of this. The, the term Protestant, how many of you have heard that word? Have you heard that? It came from this, the second diet of Spire. Now, a diet was a group, it was a meeting of a group of people to discuss doctrinal or political issues. The first Diet of Spire took place in 1526. And what that was, that was an answer to the Diet of Worms, which had taken place, I think, in 1521. The Diet of Worms, Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, which is interesting because he wasn't holy and he wasn't Roman. But he was the Holy Roman Emperor. I think he was 17. He had just been elected Holy Roman Emperor. So he sat in judgment of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms in 1521. And what he said was he wanted all Luther all of, to be killed and all of his books to be burned and all of his followers to be killed and run out of the kingdom. Okay, so that's the Diet of Worms. But that started causing him all kinds of trouble because everybody loved, you know, half the population of Germany in that area, what became Germany, they were following Luther's writings. The printing press changed everything. So people could read for themselves and see the truth. And so Luther is fighting against that. And at the, second, at the first Diet of Spire in 1526, a lot of that was softened. Um, Charles V couldn't make it to that meeting. He had another meeting elsewhere. And he sent his representative, I think it was his brother, Archduke Ferdinand I of Austria. And he went and presided over it. But Charles thought he gave a little bit too much freedom. So at the second Diet of Spire, this is a meeting between the Lutherans and the Catholics And the Catholics were in charge of a portion of the country, and the Protestants were in charge of others. So what this was, was they agreed on some things, and they argued against some things. And ultimately, again, Ferdinand I of Austria, he um, was harder on the Protestants than even Charles V wanted him to be. But something they agreed on, I think it was April 23rd or April 25th, 1529, they produced this document, the Protestants and the, doc, and, and, and the Catholics. Now, let me say this. This is what I started to say before I interrupted myself. This is where the term Protestant comes from, from this document. That's where the term comes from. And I want you to see what was in it. Ready? We're going to read this together. Watch this. Notwithstanding, we find daily that despite the cited common law and also our mandate, so these are the words of Charles V that he wrote, this old sect of Anabaptism condemned and forbidden many centuries ago. Now, again, you'll have people that say that the Baptists started in England in 1641. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but in 1529, if this guy's saying that they existed for centuries, how many of you think that's before 1641? You think that is? It's crazy. All right, so... Anabaptism condemned and forbidden many centuries ago, day by day, makes greater inroads and is getting the upper hand. The Baptists are winning. In order to prevent such evil and what may proceed from it, to preserve the peace and unity of the Holy Empire, 
as well as to dispel all dispute and doubt about the punishment for rebaptism, we therefore renew the previous imperial law as well as our above-named imperial mandate, that every Anabaptist and rebaptized man and woman of the age of reason shall be condemned and brought from natural life unto death by fire, sword, and the like, according to the person, without proceeding by the inquisition of the spiritual judges. So they can be killed. You don't even have to bring them to court. They can be killed. And let the same pseudo-preachers, instigators, vagabonds, and tumultuous inciters of the said vice of Anabaptism also whoever remains in it and all those who fall a second time, so if they repent but they go back to it, let them all by no means be shown mercy, but instead be dealt with on the power of this constitution and edict earnestly with punishment. Second diet aspire. The Protestants and the Catholics agreed that this, need, this is what needed to be done to you. This is not taught. This is not in the history books. You see, Catholicism, because of replacement theology, that authority to kill people in the name of God, they applied to themselves. And the Protestants took that mantle on their own shoulders. Martin Luther. Now, the theory is, and what we're told, is that Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel. So that's what we're told, that Martin Luther believed, you know, when he saw that salvation is by faith alone, that it changed everything, right? We've all, we've all heard that. Let's see if that's really what he believed. So Philip Melanchthon at the um, Augsburg meeting, they produced the Augsburg Confession of Faith. Philip Melanchthon, who was uh, Luther's Greek scholar, Greek language scholar, about 10 years younger than Luther, he wrote this and sent it to Luther for his approval. Luther approved it as saying, this is our faith. And now this Augsburg Confession of Faith is the foundation for the Lutheran Church. Okay, look it up. I've got a series of books called The Creeds of Christendom by Philip Schaff. You can read it in there. Just go online and Google Augsburg Confession of Faith. And what you'll find in it is their statement on baptism. This is Article 9 of baptism. That it is necessary to salvation... I thought it was faith alone. Faith alone plus baptism is another gospel that needs to be accursed. Uh, No. Whose teacher needs to be accursed? Martin Luther needs to be accursed. Man, that's so hard for people to get their heads around. People have asked me, do you believe Martin Luther was saved? I always say, man, I hope so. But if he believed that his baptism was saving him along with his faith, that's not salvation. That's not salvation. That it is necessary to salvation and that though baptism is offered by the grace of God and that children are to be baptized who being offered to God through baptism are received into God's grace. You see what Luther is saying? That children that are baptized are received into God's grace. Where is that in the Bible? Here I stand. I can do no more. Really? What are you standing on? Roman Catholic theology. This is Roman Catholicism. This is not biblical Christianity. You see, they reformed some. They reformed some of Roman Catholicism. But not all of it. 
Let's go on. They, this is still in the same statement, they, the Lutherans, condemn the Anabaptists who reject the baptism of children and say that children are saved without baptism. So here's the deal. I know there are some people that were just thinking or who listen to this recording who will say, I can't believe that he's condemning Martin Luther. Well, first of all, I'm obeying Galatians 1. Secondly, he did it first. Not like the Anabaptists. How many of you are thankful that if a child dies, they go to heaven? Do they have to be baptized? That's not in the Bible. That's Roman Catholicism. That didn't need to be reformed. It needed to be rejected because it is completely unbiblical. How about this? Luther on the Lord's Supper. Now, remember, let me, the, the problem with the issue of the Roman Catholic system on the Lord's Supper is they believe in what's called transubstantiation, that when the, the host is blessed, it actually becomes Jesus. There's an article in a newspaper in Florida that this kid stole the host from the church after it had been blessed. Look it up. And they wanted to accuse him of kidnapping because he had stolen Jesus. Because they believe it actually becomes the body and the, the, the wine actually becomes the blood of Jesus Christ and that he has sacrificed every time. So Luther, in reforming Catholicism, didn't come all the way out. Look at what Luther believed on. Article 10 of the Lord's Supper. Of the Supper of the Lord, they teach that the body and blood of Christ are truly present and are distributed to those who eat the supper of the Lord, and they reject those that teach otherwise. Now, what he's talking about in this, earlier they reject the Donatists who believed that priests needed to be holy. All right, so he separates from the Donatists, he separates from the Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists and Donatists both reject this, and they're rejecting us. Because let me tell you something, Jesus is not in the bread. Jesus is not in the juice, in the cup. That's the language the Bible uses is the cup. He's not in that. He's at the right hand of the Father. He has one body, and we don't eat it. You see, this is a biblical view of the Reformation, folks. There's some serious error here. John Wesley, anyone heard of John Wesley? John Wesley's the founder of what? Methodism. So this is from an article that we have in the, that issue of the journal that you can get. John Wesley returned to England in 1737, but his enthusiastic mode of preaching and some of his doctrines caused the churches to be closed against him. He drew around him many friends and admirers and formed them into a society in the year 1738. So that's when, that's the, considered the founding of Methodism. With an Arminian creed, that is, that they believed that you could lose your salvation and that you could reach a state of sinless perfection. All right? An Arminian creed, but an Episcopal government. Episcopal, that's from the Greek word episkopos, which means overseer. And so there's a, there's a hierarchy of authority over the churches. There's not autonomy or self-governing in a local church. There's an outside organization of bishops and archbishops and heads, which is completely Catholic, right? You get that? It has nothing to do with the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Why did he bring that in? That he never severed his connection with the established church, that's the Church of England, is evident from his own confession. 
Some of his dying words were these. So on his deathbed, he said this, I live and die a member of the Church of England, and none who regard my judgment will ever separate from it. What did the Church of England believe? On baptism. We, so this is after an infant is baptized. This is from the Book of Common Prayer. This is what the, the Anglican priest reads. Uh, we yield thee hearty thanks, most merciful Father, that it hath pleased thee to regenerate this infant with the Holy Spirit. Born again. He, what, the Catholic, or what the Anglican Church believed was that that child that is baptized is regenerated, born again, by that baptism. And John Wesley never left it. And you say, well, I, surely he didn't agree with that. How many of you are thinking that? Don't raise your hands. So this is the next statement from that article. The last revision of the prayer book, we find the following, or in the last. Quote, It is certainly God's word that children who are baptized, dying before they commit actual sin, are undoubtedly saved. In other words, we are certain of the future happiness of the baptized, but have no assurance of the salvation of the unbaptized infant. That's from the Book of Common Prayer. Church of England. Oh, Luther couldn't believe, or Wesley couldn't believe that. Quote, John Wesley, by it, speaking of baptism, we who are by nature children of wrath are made children of God, and by water as a means we are regenerated and born again. Now, is that the truth of the Word of God or is that against the Word of God? What are we give? I'm giving you a biblical view of the Reformation. How many of you, you think maybe you weren't told the truth about the Reformation? You see... They came out of the Catholic Church, but not all of the Catholic system came out of them. And that's how the Antichrist, when he comes back, is going to draw them all back in. That's what's coming. B.B. Warfield. So this would be... How many of you have heard of the fundamentalist movement? Fundamentalists, right? So B.B. Warfield is one of the founding fundamentalists. He was a Princeton theologian and did a lot of good stuff. But he was also a Presbyterian preacher. So we've seen from Anglicans and Lutherans and Methodists. Now let's look at a Presbyterian. Here's what he said. It is true that there is no express command to baptize infants in the New Testament, no express record of the baptism of infants, and no passage so stringently implying it that we must infer from them that infants were baptized. Now we can agree with that, right? I always say if you can find a baby being baptized in the Bible, I'll eat it. You say, which one, the baby or the Bible? Both, because they're not in there. If such warrant as this were necessary, this is still Warfield, if such warrant as this were necessary to justify the usage, we would have to leave it completely unjustified. But the lack of this express warrant is something far short of forbidding the right. Because just because it's not forbidden or commended, that doesn't mean we can't do it. And th doesn't that sound like your kids? Right? You didn't tell me not to burn the house down. But the lack of this express warrant is something far short of forbidding the right. And if the continuity of the church through all ages can be made good, listen, the warrant for infant baptism is not to be sought in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, where the church was instituted. And nothing short of an actual forbidding of it in the New Testament would warrant our omitting it now. So the church was started in the Old Testament. It is, if you believe, covenant theology and replacement theology. 
You see, the problem is these Reformed people that came out of the Reformation, they brought with them so much baggage that they become completely unbiblical in their statements. The church did not begin. Can you have a church without being born again? Can you be born again without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Can you be a part of the body of Christ without the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit wasn't sent in that capacity until, until Acts chapter 2. That's, that's just the clear teaching of Scripture. Is that right? So, what we end up with are these two lines of church history. There's something special that happened right here in 1611. The Bible was put into the English language in a, in a way that got to every person. Um, I don't have time to go into the history of it, but after the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588, the British said the sun never sets on the British Empire. They controlled 85% of the globe. And everywhere they went, a King James Bible went with them. And it just changed everything. But that wasn't the first one. We have a list here. You have the, the Gutenberg Bible, 1452, which was the Latin Vulgate. That was the first printed Bible. William Tyndale translated his New Testament in 1526. Culverdale, Miles Culverdale, took it and finished it because he was killed by the Catholics in Belgium. He was burned because we certainly can't allow the people to have the Bible. So he was burned. He was burned because he was giving the people the Bible. Anybody here have a Bible? 85% of your New Testament is William Tyndale's translation. So significant, the man he was. So he was killed. Coverdale finished the work, 1535. The Matthews Bible was done by Coverdale under a pseudonym because he didn't want to be killed, 1537. The Great Bible was done by the Anglican Church in 1539. The Geneva Bible was printed by English speakers in Geneva in 1560. 1560, they were running against persecution. The Bishop's Bible was the, the, the Bible produced by the bishops in 1568 in England. And the King James Bible came out in 1611. What's so fun is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Purified seven times, Psalm 12, 6. How did the Reformation happen? And, I, and I'm done. The Reformation happened because in 1516, a man named Desiderius Erasmus produced the first printed Greek text in the history of the world. That Greek text, in a, within 100 years, listen, within 100 years it was translated into 1,600 languages. That's what brought about the change in the world. Because now people could look at the Bible and compare it to what the guy standing in front of him in the dress was saying. And they weren't the same. They weren't the same. That's what changed the world. Now, let's be clear. There's no way to overestimate the significance of what happened in Germany because of Martin Luther. Wouldn't it be silly to say, well, that's overblown. It's not. No, no, no. It was, it was profoundly significant. But more significant was the fact that people were getting the Bible in their own hands. And it changed everything because now people could go and preach the Bible to people that had a Bible in front of them. Hey, look at the Scriptures. That guy's saying that. Look at the Bible. Who's right, him or the Bible? How many of you know people today that are religious? And they'll say this to you. Stop quoting Scripture to me. 
That's the same battle Martin Luther had. That's the same battle Christians have had going all the way back to the time of Christ. You know what we should continue to do? Quote Scripture to them. Quote Scripture to them. Because the Bible says that His Word won't return again to Him void. We don't have the power. God's words have the power. Biblical view of the Reformation. What's happening is this. You know, for a short period of time, when the Bible... You have these two lines of church history? When the Bible got in the hands of the people, you had this period of time from 1700 to the the end of the 1800s where the, the missionary expansion around the world exploded like it never had before. And then what happened? People started undermining the Word of God. Do you really have the Bible? Can you really trust the Bible that you have? And now you'll go to a church. You can't even carry your own Bible because the preacher is going to use 25 different versions of the Bible in his sermon. So what do you have being reestablished? The Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. The guy that knows the Bible, and you've got to sit there and say, teach me, teach me. What I say is study for yourself. Learn the Bible. Check me out with the Word of God. Check me out in history. Look it all up. See if we're making any of it up. What's happening is this Laodicea period. It began around 1881 with the release of the modern translations of the Bible. And what that's all leading to is a one-world church. But you know what's going to happen soon? The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Something in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen? Man, it's so wonderful. He's coming back. Do you know when we really get into trouble? When someone asks us, what do you believe? And we say, well, Martin Luther said. Well, John Wesley taught. Well, John Calvin said. When somebody asks you what you believe, you know what you ought to say? Well, Jesus said, the Apostle Paul wrote, the Bible says, what does your pastor believe? Well, Jesus said, well, he believes what Jesus said. He believes what Paul said. He believes what the Bible said. Does he think he's the only one that's right? No. No, not at all. Aren't you glad we're not the only ones that are right? Isn't that a blessing? But if they disagree with us on this, they're wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. What is that? That's a biblical view of the Reformation. Man, I'm glad the Reformation took place, but how many of you can see it didn't go far enough? It, so what happened, the reason that, the, the, the result, that, that fundamentalist movement that started and then the evangelical movement, all of that stuff, it's all because the Reformation didn't go far enough. Last statement. Baptists aren't Protestants. We have existed all the way back to Christ and the Apostles. What we believe, that faith that we believe, can be traced all the way back to the apostles. And there have always been people that have believed what we believe. Amen? We didn't need to be reformed. We were running for our lives from the people that needed to be reformed and then from the reformers. Remember, Second Diet of Spire, the Protestants called for the killing of all the Anabaptists without mercy. Without mercy. Martin Luther himself wrote a letter to Henry VIII telling him he needs to kill all the Baptists that are in his, in his uh, country. You think that's evil? How I many you think that's evil? You see, that's a biblical view of the Reformation. 
Let's not us be like that. We don't want to kill anybody who believes differently than we do. We want them to be saved. We want them to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and have eternal life. But don't be sucked into all this Reformation stuff that's going on right now because this week is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church, Wittenberg, Germany. This is the 500th anniversary of it. But we don't trace our heritage there. And I'm so thankful that we don't believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. And we certainly don't believe we're eating Jesus. Amen? Let's all stand.